Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Love Talk Radio. Hi. Think I'm doing this? It's, uh, you know, don't usually do these things, so this is all new. There it is. So, thank you for being here. This is my gigantic, I don't know, like Christmas-tacular so I'm celebrating the release of a new book. My new book is called, what is it? Llewellyn's Little Book of Yule. As if you can see it, it is quite small. So it does live up to its title. And it's all about Yule. It's all about holiday stuff. Very excited about it. I, I think it's a pretty good little book. I don't get to have book signing or anything. So all I get to do is hang out online with all of you and hope someone watches this video, which would be really nice. You know, just humor me a little bit, so to speak, and watch the video. That would be great. And thank you for being here. Hi, Chris. It's good to know that I'm not alone. I'm also recording this on audio because a copy of it. And yeah. So my thought is what I'm really going to do is I'm just going to talk about Yule for a while, share some Yule information and stuff. Uh-oh, you can't hear it. That's not good. Anybody else having hearing problems? This is, I'm recording this for my podcast. It's also live on Facebook right now. I hear somebody can't hearing so I wanted to check make sure everyone can hear it aha thank you thank you Phoenix thank you for being here it's so cute so nice when people show up things you know it makes me feel loved you know Ari makes me feel loved most of the time but you know this is extra exciting I'm really proud of this little book I think I finished writing it about two years ago so you know it it feels like 10 years ago in COVID time. But at the same time, um, I think of all the books I've written so far, this one really is a lot of me because I really do love Yule. If you're watching, you can see this beautiful Krampus sweater because, you know, I have to have a Krampus sweater because it's the Krampus. He's the shit. He's the best. Uh, I also have lots of other stupid holiday sweaters. I have almost a holiday sweater. For every like day of December, that's how many I have, which you know is either something to be proud of or something not to be proud of. So I was hoping that 
I was going to like use a slideshow for this, but it doesn't seem to want to let me do that, which is fine. I know lots of super Yule goody stuff, and you don't really need pictures for it anyways. So one of the things I love about Yule is that, to me, it is the most magical of all of the holiday seasons. I know in the world of witchcraft, when we think of magical times of year, we probably think Samhain the most. Like, oh, yeah, Samhain is the shit. We love Samhain. And Samhain is great. Yule is really different in that there are all of these holidays that are celebrated, and a lot of these holidays and a lot of the things we do today go back thousands and thousands of years. They are legitimately ancient old, and the whole season is infused with magic. You know, you don't ever hear somebody say, oh, my God, it's a Thanksgiving miracle. Instead, what you hear is, oh, my God, it's a Christmas miracle, because Christmas is where a lot of those ancient pagan things ended up. Hi, Alicia. Hey, boss. And they all ended up there. I mean, it's the one time of year where you are encouraged to be magical. And we don't really have that in the rest of society. Maybe a little bit at Halloween, Samhain time, but not the rest of the time. We are encouraged to love magic during this time of year. If you think about Santa Claus, there's like no more magical a being than Santa Claus. You know, he lives at the North Pole, which until climate change was uninhabitable. And he has flying reindeer, and he has elves that make toys for him. He visits every house apparently in the world in 24 hours, and according to NORAD Santa Tracker, delivers billions of gifts. That's fucking magic, and that is what happens at Yuletide. Speaking of magic, my beautiful wife just walked in the door. There's a video, so they're gonna see you. Uh, yeah, I have it blocked, so she can't see herself. But give me a little kiss. Love you. That holiday love. Holiday love. So it's really like any other time of year. And the traditions that most of us have up in our homes, most of the ways we decorate, a lot of the ways that we do things during the Yule season are legitimately old, going back thousands and thousands of years. When it comes to something like Halloween, Samhain, a lot of those things, even if they feel old, are really only 500 years old, sometimes not even 100 years old. But there's an awful lot of Yule stuff that is legitimately old and has been celebrated for thousands and thousands of years. So the winter solstice, for whatever reason, has really captured the human imagination. And some of the oldest monuments that we have to naturally occurring celestial phenomenon like equinoxes and solstices are about the winter solstice. In Germany, there's a 7,000-year-old circle aligned with the winter solstice. Uh, that's pretty freaking ancient. I mean, that's before Dionysus, the name in the world. That's a very, very, very long time ago. And most of us are familiar with Newgrange in Ireland, which is 3500 uh, BCE, so 5,500 years old, which is a pretty freaking old thing, and it aligns with winter solstice. And the light comes in and floods the chamber, and you can watch that now live on the internet every year, which is a really cool way to bring in the winter solstice. 
And then even Stonehenge, which we usually think of as having something more to do with the summer solstice, is actually more aligned with the winter solstice. So, you know, even Stonehenge aligned with the winter solstice because people love, 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 love the winter solstice and always have. So when I wrote this little book, and if you read the reviews on Goodreads, which I think everyone there hates me, they're pretty obvious. This is not a book necessarily about Yule, the winter solstice only. It's not just a book for witches and pagans. It's part of Llewellyn's series, and these are books for people who live a magical life. So I wanted to write a book for everyone who loves this particular time of year. So really, when I think of Yule, I think of what I call Yuletide, which means a bunch of different holidays that start next week and run through the first week of January. And a lot of those holidays we don't talk about so much anymore, but a lot of them were a big deal for a very, very long time. So, you know, Thanksgiving in the United States especially is the start of the, quote, holiday season. And I know a lot of people get really annoyed with the creep of Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas all sort of blending into one major holiday. But the truth of the matter is that they're very, very interrelated. The Puritans in New England did not celebrate Christmas. So their big winter holiday, uh, starting in the 19th and 18th centuries, ended up being Thanksgiving. And almost everything that you know about the history of Thanksgiving is wrong. Had nothing to do with the pilgrims at first. The uh, Sarah Hale was really the kind of architect of making Thanksgiving a national holiday in the United States. She said the Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving occurred in Boston. So it's very, very different than, you know, what they tell you in books. Not that we're going to spend a whole lot of time talking about Thanksgiving. But anyways, it's sort of the start. One of my favorite little holidays is called Repost, which is the Friday after Thanksgiving. I know for a lot of people in normal times, it's Black Friday and shopping, et cetera, et cetera. But Repost is sort of like a ninth Sabbath tucked between Samhain and Yule. And would you think about the difference between the end of October and near the end of November, it's really, really big. No matter where I've lived in the United States, whether it was Michigan, Tennessee, Virginia, or now California, it, there's something really different about October versus the end of November. And you don't really get that with some of the other Sabbaths. Like Midsummer and Lamas are like the same thing. It doesn't really feel all that different outside. But for some reason, you know, when we enter the beginning of winter, late fall, things move very, very rapidly. So Repos was, was crafted by a group called Farifaria, which is one of the first modern pagan groups in the United States. And I won't spend a lot of time talking about it, but I think it's a really cool idea. And of course, it's in the book. Most of us now are familiar with Krampus Night, December 5th. Fuck yeah, Krampus. Love my Krampus. Ari's kind of scared of it, but that's okay. She'll get over it. St. Nicholas Day, December 6th. St. Lucy's Day, December 13th, which might really be related to a lot of ancient pagan sun uh, uh, celebrations. Hanukkah, this year's December 10th through the 18th. Interesting little note about Hanukkah, the dreidel was created so the Jewish people could gamble during the holidays. That's when it was allowed in Christian Europe in the Middle Ages. So there you go. Little little dumb thing you might not have known. Winter solstice this year is December 21st. 
We a lot of us do call it Yule, which is also a name a lot of people use for Christmas itself. And people have been using Yule and Christmas interchangeably since December 21st. The winter solstice is not just a pagan and witch celebration anymore. There are a lot of people who celebrate the winter solstice now, and it's becoming especially popular amongst atheists as an alternative to Christmas. And I think now when people say happy holidays, they are aware that they are also wishing you a happy solstice. Obviously, Christmas is December 25th. St. Stephen's Day, Boxing Day, is December 26th. St. Stephen's Day is the original Catholic holiday, uh, named after the first Christian martyr. Boxing Day was sort of the Protestant spin on it, because they call it St. Stephen's Day anyway anymore. We don't really talk about St. Stephen's Day as really being a part of the holidays anymore, but it's in the song Good King Wenceslas. Good King Wenceslas went out on the Feast of Stephen. That's the only time it shows up. Kwanzaa also begins December 26th. Last till January 1st, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, of course, two fucking great holidays. Jason's birthday, if you'd like to buy me a gift, is January 4th, also the birthday of Doreen Valiente, the mother of modern witchcraft. Twelfth night, January 5th, Twelfth night used to be the biggest festival of the holiday season because it was the end of the entire Christmas season. On Twelfth night, people used to pass out presents, they used to get rip-roaringly drunk, they would go waffling anything that we do that's celebratory, like at Yule or Christmas or whatever you want to call it, people were doing on Twelfth Night for quite a while. And it's a shame that we've lost Twelfth Night. One of the things that I hate the most about the way the United celebrate the United States celebrates the holiday season today, and I'm very adamant about this, I hate the fact that it ends January 1st. And then sometimes it seems to end December 28th. They're called the holidays. They are supposed to linger. Epiphany is January 6th. In some places, still a very big deal. And parts of England used to celebrate Plow Monday on the first Monday after Epiphany. So if you got lucky and January 6th was a Monday, you got a whole extra week of holiday drunkenness. And of course, Plow Monday was an opportunity to take a plow through the streets and celebrate having to go back to work with, of course, getting drunk first. Speaking of getting drunk, because it is the holidays, I am drinking some cider from my special cider cup picked picked up at a cider barn in England. I only drink from this cup on very, very special occasions. When it comes to the history of the holiday season, there are a couple of big names that are always worth mentioning. As I said, for thousands of years, people have been celebrating the winter solstice But perhaps the most influential of all the ancient holidays was the Roman holiday of Saturnalia, which was celebrated from 300 BCE till about 500 CE. And if you were to look at Christmas in the year 50 versus the Saturnalia, there would be no difference. Pretty much everything on Christmas was stolen from Saturnalia or borrowed, and Saturnalia was like one of the best times. Originally a one-day holiday, It was so much fun, they had to extend it even longer. And one of the things about Saturnalia was it was a time to eat good food. It was a time to drink a lot. It was a time to dress up. There was a lot of nice costumes at Saturnalia time. There was a lot of cross-dressing at Saturnalia time. It was also a time for sort of reversing social norms. So in the Roman Empire, they were an empire built on slavery. They're very much like the United States. 
And on Saturnalia, masters would wait on their slaves and the slaves would be treated very, very well. We'll talk a little bit about that. It's really important. So uh, Saturnalia was a great time and they decorated with evergreen boughs and they decorated with holly and they sang songs, even Christmas carols were really stolen from pagans. And they just had the best time and followed right after the Saturnalia were the January calends. Calends were always the first of the month. It was an excuse for the Romans to party. And the January calends were one of the most important because it was when they exchanged a lot of gifts. A fourth century Roman writer wrote once, quote, the impulse to spend seizes everyone. People are not only generous themselves, but to their fellow men. A stream of presents pours itself out on all sides. So if you are upset about the commercialization of the holiday season, so was Libanius back in the year 380 of the Common Era. So it was a big, long, extended celebration with presents and almost all of the decorations that we are used to seeing today. You know, the next sort of big thing when it comes to the holiday season is Christmas. It's the elephant in the room. You have to talk about Christmas. A lot of the things that we do come from people who at least said that they were nominally Christian. Just is what it is. You know, we still call it a Christmas tree at our house. It's just easier to say because it's what everybody else does. You know, Christmas, the first documented Christmas, Christmas 336, so it's kind of a latecomer. In 273, in the Roman Empire, they began celebrating the birth of the sun. There is a lot of debate whether or not the birth of the sun predates Christmas or Christmas stole its date from that particular celebration. The earliest time that we see anything mentioning when Jesus was born as a, and using that as an excuse for celebration is in the year 200. But Epiphany was given as the date of Jesus' birth, which is January 6th, not December 25th. So they ended up moving it a couple of centuries later. One of the things about Epiphany is it's been home to many different things over the last 2,000 years. So originally the birth of Jesus Greek Orthodox Church once celebrated it as when the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus, he's baptized in the Jordan River by St. John the Baptist. And then eventually today, most Protestants and Catholics celebrate Epiphany as the day that the wise men came to Jesus. All of those manger scenes are wrong when there are wise men there on December 25th. Even in 380, the Christians who had begun celebrating this holiday, their leaders knew that things were wrong. This is Gregory the Nazianzen. Nazianzen? Not very good at his name. Anyway, you wouldn't want to party with him, and neither do I, because he wrote about Christians celebrating Christmas. Let us not put wreaths on our front doors, or assemble troops of dance, or decorate the streets. Let us not feast the eyes, or memorize the sense of hearing, or make effeminate the sense of smell, or prostitute the sense of taste, or gratify the sense of touch. I told you this guy was not fun. These are paths to evil and entrances to sin. Let us not assess the bouquets of wine, the concoctions of chefs, the great costs of perfumes. Let earth and sea not bring us gifts that value dung. 
for that is how I know to evaluate luxury. But let us leave these things to the Greeks and to Greek pomp and festivals. As for me, I will happily take the bouquets of wine and the concoctions of chefs, even the great cost of perfumes, if it makes somebody happy. So, you know, they realized very, very early that everything they were doing was pretty much stolen, and there was no way to stop it, because people fucking loved it and wanted to keep doing it. So, now you see Saturnalia Christmas, and then the Germanic Norse celebration of Yule, sometimes spelled J-U-L, which today we think of usually as like a one-day festival. For the ancient Germanic peoples, it was about a two-day, two-day festival. It was like a two-month party from the middle of November to the middle of January. Part of that is because it was, you know, they probably had 20 minutes of sunlight if they were lucky. And it was cold. There was plenty of meat because you'd butchered all of it. The beer had come in. The mead was ready. What else are you going to do for two months in your long hauls but have a really great time? And a lot of the things that we associate today with the holiday season were there at the Germanic Norse celebration of Yule. There were candles, bonfires, there were Yule logs, there were evergreen branches decorating everywhere, and there were ghost stories. Ghost stories were a big part of Yuletide for a very long time up until the 19th century, because if you think about it, it's dark, it's cold, it's, it's, you know, it is kind of a scary time of year, so it makes sense. Mostly, though, what they did in those ancient Norse Yule celebrations was drink. Lots and lots and lots of drinking. It was a time to have as much as you wanted, and it was a time especially to eat pork, which they thought was a very, very special thing to have. So if you have a Christmas ham or tradition of that in your family, you can really thank the ancient Norse for that. Five sort of big ideas that have helped shape our modern Yuletide. And uh, some of these still exist in various forms. A lot of them sort of tapered down in the ninth, at the end of the 19th century, but I will argue that they're still around in various different forms. So one of the first is mumming, which is dressing up. And people dressed up in a lot of different ways during the winter holidays. So they might dress up in fancy clothes, which is fun. They might dress up in an ugly sweater like this one. They might also um, – I, I keep looking at all the comments, and then I'm like, oh, no, that's so great. You know, proper wine pairing for pork is mead. So, yeah, that's wonderful. But if I lose my train of thought, it's because I'm reading everything that you all are writing, and it's really great. Anyway, so mumming was the big thing. Uh, the ancient Greeks did it. Uh, it was part of the Roman Saturnalia. People dressed up in animal costumes. They cross-dressed quite often, and sometimes they just wore their best clothes. And this still exists today in a lot of traditions, even if we don't really think of it as mummer necessarily. The word mummer can be traced back to ancient Greece. There's a word called mamus, which means satire or mockery. The Old English word is mommer, which relates to masking, miming, and frolicking. And even before the Old English word, there's an even old German word, which is where uh, another where place that mummer might come from. There's still a lot of mumming traditions that exist in the world, 
My favorite one is from Newfoundland in Canada. And they have a like a really advanced Chris mumming tradition. People dress up in costumes, but they're not good costumes. They're terrifying costumes that look like they come out of the purge. A lot of times it's like a like a pillowcase over your head with eyes cut out and some things drawn on it. Sometimes people like you know, like when I was a kid, if I was a mummer bear, I would have like worn all my mom's clothes, maybe with the bra on the outside, that kind of thing. And yes, Mummer's Dance is technically a Yule song. There you go. But the so in Newfoundland when they do the mummer the mumming thing, the people who dress up, they go from door to door. They're invited inside and the people in the house are supposed to guess who the actual is under the costume you know what's the identity of that person so uh, you know it's a kind of a dangerous thing it was outlawed for a little bit in the 19th century because people were using it as a way to steal things from other people's houses but today usually when you do it you go out and you're invited in and then they ask you questions to try to figure out who you are but the people answer in a normal voice instead they talk while inhaling air you know, which sounds like it's which is really, really, I mean, that is scary. Um, and actually, it kind of hurts your throat. But imagine having that in your house. And then once you figure out who they are, you give them food and you give them drink and it's fun. And yes, people dressed up for lots and lots of holidays. But it was the Yuletide season that they dressed up for the most. It was the, it was the big in Philadelphia today, there is still a giant mummers parade on January 1st. Why people don't make a bigger deal out of this holiday, this big parade, is beyond me. There are thousands of people who participate in it and tens of thousands more, tens of thousands more who watch the parade. And every time I see clips from the parade, it's much better than the Rose Parade. This should be the thing that's on everyone's TV. And if you look at it, it kind of looks a lot like Mardi Gras down in New Orleans, which happens a couple of weeks later. And I would argue that Mardi Gras is really kind of home to a lot of sort of discarded Yule traditions, like dressing up in fine clothes and other things and crazy costumes. Halloween itself is one of those hol- is one of those holidays that I feel like has probably absorbed things from other places. Most notably, they've probably absorbed all of the mumming traditions that were a part of Yuletide. You know, in the United States, and most people don't know this, people didn't really go trick-or-treating until the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and it really kind of coalesced after World War II. Before that, especially in the 1920s, kids used to go trick-or-treating, or the equivalent of, on Thanksgiving Day. And they would dress up in various costumes, and they would call kids Thanksgiving maskers, or sometimes people would call Thanksgiving Ragamuffin Day for all of the Ragamuffin kids, because the costumes usually weren't like the best in the world or anything. They weren't too elaborate. And in places like New York City, they'd go door-to-door to to businesses asking for things, just like kids go trick-or-treating today. And eventually, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade became so popular that the kids stopped going out as ragamuffins 
and they ended up sort of moving that tradition to Halloween. So there you go, a little weird thing. One of my favorite things of the holiday season is misrule. Misrule, I think, still exists to some degree, but it was very rowdy, and a lot of people didn't like it because of what was going on in the name of misrule. So we can see misrule at the Saturnalia. Lucian was a Roman writer, and he wrote about the Saturnalia, and he wrote about how at the Saturnalia, the social order is inverted and changed. He wrote, each man shall take the couch where he happens to be. Rank, family, or wealth shall have little influence on privilege. All shall drink of the same wine, and neither stomach, trouble, nor headache shall give the rich man an excuse for being the only one to drink better quality. All shall have their meat on equal terms. The waiter shall not show favor to everyone or anyone. Neither are large portions to be placed before one and tiny ones before another, nor ham for one and a pig's jaw for another. All must be treated equally. When a rich man gives a banquet to his servants, his friends shall aid him in waiting on them. So what happened during the Saturnalia was the rich waited on the poor, and in some cases on the slaves that were part of their household, and everything was reversed and changed. And this tradition existed in Europe really up until the beginning of the 19th century when it was kind of downplayed. There was something else that happened um, at Saturnalia, which is related to misrule. Lucian again writes, they shall not only escape silly orders, but you can give them yourself telling one man to shout out something disgraceful about himself, another to dance naked, pick up the flute girl, and carry her three times around the house. I would like to carry and pick up the flute girl three times around the house. And the figure that did all of this would later become to be known as the Lord of Misrule. In Scotland, he was called the Bean King. And that was the person that was in charge of the merriment and revelry that accompanied the Yuletide season. People were picked, and sometimes the picking of the Lord of Misrule or the Bean King was left to chance. The Bean King gets his name because whoever got the bread with the bean in it ended up being the Bean King. And the Bean King's orders were as law, and they were to make you silly, fun things. In churches, children would become deacons or bishops a day, as again, the social order was inverted, and some person who was not really in charge got to play like they were in charge for the, for the day and have a good time, and everybody celebrated and had fun. If you're familiar with the Mardi Gras tradition of king cake, that again, probably related to Yuletide traditions of misrule, because it's really very close to being the same sort of thing. In king cake, you find a little creepy baby in your cake and then whoever finds the baby is the person in charge and has to bring the cake with the creepy plastic baby the next year. One of the other things about misrule ended up being that it was a time to kind of do whatever you wanted for a couple of days because in Christian Europe there were a lot of times when you couldn't do what you wanted and the Christmas season ended up being excused to do what you wanted because of misrule. Increase you Increase Mather, the son of Cotton Mather from the Salem Witch Trials in 1712, quote, the Feast of Christ's Nativity is spent in reveling, dicing, parting, masking, 
and in all the city of liberty, by mad mirth, by long eating, by hard drinking, by lewd gaming, by rude reveling. Increase rather hated Christmas because people used it as an excuse to have a good time because that's what they had always done. The rest of the year, you were not supposed to dice, but you would during this particular time of year because all the rules were off the table. I find the baby creepy. I'm reading a comment that the baby is not creepy, Carla, and that's that's your opinion. I think the baby is a little creepy, but never makes people happy. What is what is lewd gaming? I would think lewd gaming is probably a game of strip poker. No, I tease. Uh, lewd gaming, he just thinks that gambling is wrong, so he calls it lewd. I don't think it was a particular style of gambling, but lewd gaming. Also, it could be like people were playing a game like that might have involved kisses or something like that, which would be lewd by increased Mather's standards. Even the walking tradition, when we, which we think of today, we often think of it as very much sort of like Christmas caroling, like, here we go, wassailing. And, you know, there there's some truth to that, but wassailing was really much more involved than that suggests. Wassailing was a continuation of misrule traditions. So if you were a wassailer, you were probably a working class poor, and you would go out sometime during the holiday season. Didn't have to be Christmas, could be before, could be in the early week of January, lots of different times. You would go out and you would call upon your bosses, maybe local nobility. You would call upon the people with money and you would knock on their door and you would maybe sing a song for them or do a play for them. And in return, they would give you really, really good booze. Sometimes people used wassailing a little bit different. They would take a bowl of bad booze and go door to door with it and would let you drink their terrible booze in exchange for your good booze, which doesn't sound like a good deal. But these people were taken advantage of all throughout the year. And wassailing in the holiday season was an opportunity to be appreciated. It was kind of like an early Christmas bonus. One of my favorite writers on the Christmas season, he talked about it as being a social safety valve. And one of the things about waffling is it came with consequences. If you did not participate by giving your good food and your good drink, then there would be something worse than pranks played upon you. There would be probably pretty serious vandalism because you earned that vandalism. And good, you know, so most people played along with it until about the beginning of the 19th century when it changed a little bit because the middle class decided they weren't going to play that game anymore. But that's a story um, for a later time. The other thing they did in England, which I think is the coolest shit, and it's really come back the last couple of years, is wobbling apple trees, where people would go and they'd visit their orchards and they would sing songs around the tree. And then they would pour the tree some cider as a thank you for producing apples in the fall. People could drink cider. It, to me, is a very pagan sort of thing to do, to give thanks to the earth and to the trees that give to us. 
So that's something that I want to bring back. I think I'm going to go waffle my lemon tree in the backyard this year, even though just because I don't have an apple tree. One of the things that we can't escape during the holiday season is the nativity. And again, you know, it's problematic for a lot of pagans. I know a lot of people had bad experiences in the church. One of the things to me, though, when I think about the nativity story is there's a lot of really crummy shit in the Bible. But one of the things about the nativity is the story itself is that this is a time and a place for everyone. Gospel of Matthew has the wise men come and visit Jesus. Those represented people of power, kings, people with lots of money. And then in Luke, the shepherds come and visit Jesus. And those were humble people. So you had the rich and the poor together both celebrating, which to me is a nice story. And also in my own pagan practice, when I look at a nativity scene, I don't see Jesus there. I see a little tiny sun baby being born because the world is reborn at Yule when the sun comes back to us. So, you know, I interpret it that way. One of the things that you read a lot about, especially in December, you'll read a lot is, you know, Jesus and Horus being the same or Jesus and Mithra being the same. A lot of those stories are sort of overdone, probably not particularly true. We know a lot about Horus. He was not born of a virgin. His birthday was not December 25th. He did not have disciples. There was no star when he was born, etc., etc. And we don't know as much about Mithra as I wish that we did. So it's hard to say, like, if Jesus' story was stolen there. You know, let people have it. It's fine. Also, if you do set up a nativity scene at your house, one of the greatest things you can do you can get a Cagner to add to it. And the Cagner is a little figurine that poops. And it shows this little peasant boy from Catalonia in Spain pooping. And it's in every nativity scene there. It's considered bad luck not to have the figure, whose name literally means Christmas shitter, right there in your nativity scene. So a nativity scene just so you can have this little kid pooping on it because it's really weird and and fun. One of the last things that I think is sort of an essential of the holiday season is Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, which was published in 1843. Dickens' Christmas Carol, despite people saying that Dickens invented Christmas, it's not quite true, but Dickens repopularized the holiday of Christmas because it's kind of been waning a little bit in popularity. It's not like today where... Most businesses are closed and people have the day off. It was for most people another work day. A lot of that was in retaliation because of the drunkenness that misrule brought in. Uh, People were vandalizing things, really, really drunk and other stuff. So people really kind of wanted to downgrade and marginalize the Christmas season. But Dickens really loved it as a child, and that comes through in his book. And one of the things that he did which was a way to kind of change the season. And I don't think he did it intentionally is, you know, some of the most important things in the book about the Cratchit family celebrating Christmas around their kitchen table. And until the 19th century, Christmas wasn't a holiday that you celebrated with your family in a quiet way. 
you went out and you got rip roaring drunk and you probably went in a mob and yelled and screamed and had a grand old time. That was how Christmas was celebrated for a long time. The idea that you're going to have a giant Christmas dinner with your family was kind of the exception. If you were a Puritan, you probably had to go listen to sermons all day uh, because so that way they could keep tabs on you. So it sort of changes the holiday a little bit in that way because he makes that more of a centerpiece of what it is. Also kind of brings back the old tradition of Christmas being a time for ghost stories. The actual title of A Christmas Carol is A Christmas Carol, period, in prose, period, being a ghost story of Christmas. And the idea of the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and yet to come is pretty established. A Christmas Carol might be the most adapted book in the history of the English language. It might be the most read book in the history of the English language. There will be Christians who will go, oh, the Bible. No, a lot of people have one, but I don't really think most people have read it. So the Christmas Carol, super popular book. Um, and it was from the moment it was published, it was very, very popular. Though Dickens, A Cricket in the Hearth, which was published a little while later, was bigger and more popular for much of the 19th century, for whatever reason. If you go back and you look at Dickens' original art in A Christmas Carol, I swear the Ghost of Christmas Present looks like Bacchus. And it's how I picture Bacchus. And if you were to ask me who the, who the real D of the Yuletide season is, I will always tell you that it is Dionysus slash Bacchus. And he helps me quite a bit, Charles Dickens, in making that argument. At the same time Dickens releases A Christmas Carol, another thing is happening that changes the holiday season. It's Victoria marries Prince Albert in 1840. Uh, as I said, Christmas was kind of on the wane a little bit in England, but it never was on the wane in Germany. It was a very, very big and important holiday there. It was where they had Christmas trees. And when Albert marries Victoria, he brings all of that into the U.K., and then it's exported almost immediately to the United States. There really weren't Christmas trees in the English-speaking world until 1840 and a couple of decades after that. But it's hard to imagine the holiday season without a tree at this point. And it really hasn't even been a part of the holidays in the United States for even 200 years. That is pretty, pretty wild when you think about it. Uh, so Victoria and Albert, they really helped popularize Christmas. And Dickens' book comes out just two years later. The Christmas tree is kind of a fascinating piece of holiday lore. So we know that the Romans and the Norse and the Germanic peoples all all decorated with evergreen boughs. So in a sense, the Christmas tree is definitely a pagan tradition because those branches have been a part of pagan traditions for 2,500 years. There's even a very weird little mosaic that shows Dionysus with a scraggly pine tree getting ready to celebrate Saturnalia. Some people think that this is the first Christmas tree. I think it's probably a stretch, but interesting nonetheless. Most people credit the Christmas tree to Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer who, you know, did what his ancestors did, except he didn't just cut down a branch. He cut down the whole tree. But for a long time, trees had already been in a lot of Christian churches by the 1400s because they were often set up on Christmas Eve 
under the guise of being a paradise tree. The Christmas Eve was the feast day of Adam and Eve, and they would put a tree, usually an evergreen tree, in church and then decorate it with apples to represent the tree of knowledge and the Garden of Eden and all that. So the, the tree was already there probably before Martin Luther decided he was going to call it a Christmas tree. But it spread out, you know, was, you know, once Albert came to the UK, it kind of took off everywhere and was a staple of English and Scottish and American households ever since. If you've ever watched Charlie Brown's Christmas, you've seen like the metal tree. And as a kid, I never understood that shit at all because we did not have aluminum Christmas trees when I was growing up. But it was apparently a fad in the late 50s, early 60s when they made that stupid cartoon, which I love. The soundtrack is great, but it is a little preachy. But it stayed in the cartoon, and that's how most people today know the stories of aluminum trees all from Charlie Brown. A couple of decades before Albert comes to the UK and before Dickens releases A Christmas Carol, something was happening in the United States to make the Christmas Yuletide season a much bigger deal. And that person is Santa Claus. Now, certainly people had been getting gifts from St. Nicholas as a Yuletide spirit since the 12th century. So the first people to give gifts in the name of St. Nicholas were a bunch of nuns from Paris who gave them to children in the hopes of calming children down. Um, why did they choose Nicholas for this? Well, Nicholas was the patron saint of everything, and they were already expecting gifts from their parents on that day. They just added sort of a supernatural element to it. And once this happened in Paris, it kind of spread out across Europe and really see it like taking root in the Netherlands. And in the Netherlands, there was another figure there that was a part of popular culture along with Nicholas, and that was Odin. Now, a lot of scholars really refute the idea that Odin had anything to do with Santa Claus. I disagree with those people entirely, and if any, most people who know me know that I'm not someone who just jumps at every thought related to paganism thing. But one of the things about Odin is Odin didn't go away when the Netherlands was Christianized. Odin stayed in those areas kind of as a folktale and a folk figure, and people still told stories about Odin. He was still around in a way. And if you look at pictures of Odin from the 13th century or so, he looks a lot more like Santa Claus than the pictures of the more Byzantine-looking St. Nicholas. So one of the things that really connects St. Nicholas and Santa Claus to Odin is his mode of transportation. St. Nicholas did not have any sort of magic way of getting around other than being a saint, apparently. But we all know that Odin had a magic horse. So when St. Nicholas goes to the Netherlands, what does he get to give kids presents? He gets a magical horse. And then he gets elves and all these other things. And where do those things come from? They come from Norse mythology, and they come from Odin. Also sort of a rough and tumble look to St. Nicholas slash Santa Claus in some parts of Europe. And that rough and tumble look is more keeping with 
how Odin looks in a lot of pictures. So I'm very convinced that these figures kind of all had to merge really to create the modern Santa Claus. A lot of things that people say about Santa Claus are not true. The first time that we ever hear the, we see the name Santa Claus in a book is 1821, where Santa Claus is spelled as one word, Santa Claus, not Santa, space, Claus. Uh, this book is called The Children's Friend and has a picture of Santa in a sleigh being driven by a reindeer. This is the first picture of Santa having a sleigh driven by a reindeer. So it's sort of a really revolutionary drawing. We don't know who wrote this book called The Children's Friend. Uh, it's been lost to history, but whoever this person was was a valuable architect in Santa mythos and probably inspired Clement Clark Moore to write A Visit from St. Nicholas in 1823. A Visit from St. Nicholas is the most read poem in the English language. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. I could probably say the entire thing, but that just seems like overkill. But the popularity of that poem cannot be denied. It spread like wildfire across the United States. It got published in newspapers and other places. And once a kid heard about Santa Claus, how do you take Santa Claus out of the picture? And once they hear that Santa Claus comes on Christmas Day, how could Christmas Day not be the most important day of the year for children? And again, this had another impact. It made Christmas a children's holiday when before it had been a holiday about going out and drinking and being obnoxious. And it's thought that Clement Clark Moore and a few other individuals from New York City, they're called the Knickerbockers, made a conscious effort to change how Christmas was celebrated so that they would not be bothered as middle-class individuals, which is kind of a shame because I would like to bring back some of the more drunken aspects of Christmas. As the, the popularity of Santa Claus grew, St. Nicholas grew in the United States because of Twas the Night Before Christmas. Santa is all of a sudden everywhere. He's in department stores just 10 years later in cities like uh, Philadelphia and New York. It, Santa spreads really, really fast. And one of the reasons that Santa spread was he had sort of a look that was put together by Thomas Nast, who was a cartoonist in New York City. He had the big coat. He had a red coat. That's not a Coca-Cola thing. It's not magic mushrooms either. And, you know, he was a right jolly old elf with his kind of tummy and all that that had going on. And then it spread. So refined a little bit. It's true by Coca-Cola. Uh, Thomas Nast's Santa was a little rough around the edges. Today our Santa's a little less so. But, you know... This thing comes out like whoosh, like a house of fire, and it just consumes the United States in 10 or 20 years, and all of a sudden, it's everywhere. The timing was perfect, too, because the United States is going through a lot of changes, and so is Europe. But the first time ever, you actually really had a middle class. 
and you had leisure time for the first time, and you had an industrial society that produced goods that wanted to sell goods. Santa was the perfect person to market all that stuff that you wanted to sell. It was the perfect time to celebrate a a holiday like Christmas because everything had kind of fallen into place. Rough edges had been removed to some degree. You had a gift giver. It was about the home. It was about kids, about the family. You know, it was still about drinking in a couple of places, but it had changed. And by 1910, most everything that we kind of associate with Christmas in the United States had kind of been set. One of the great things about Europe and America sucks. We like hold on to one thing and don't have room for anything else. So we decided that Christmas was going to be the big holiday. So we're going to get rid of Twelfth Night. We were going to really marginalize New Year's Eve. Epiphany, schmiphany. None of the saints' days. And we're also only going to have one gift giver. And no helpers for that gift giver until that repulsive elf on the shelf came through. Um, And Europe has so many cool-ass gift givers. My favorite, your favorite, everyone but Ari's favorite is, of course, the Krampus. There's a lot of things that are said wrong about the Krampus today. There is nothing necessarily that connects him to ancient paganism. There's a story that went around for a while that he was connected to the goddess of hell, which actually came from a fiction book that was picked up and spread all over the Internet. If you ever see that particular uh, little tidbit of information, there's never a footnote for it because it can't be footnoted. It's just something that's repeated over and over. The Krampus, though, we know how old he is because he shows up first in the 15th and 16th centuries. He's popular in Germany and Austria and all the way down to Croatia. And Krampus, his night, Krampus night, December 5th, it's a way to check up on children before St. Nicholas gives presents on St. Nicholas Day. And Krampus is the bad cop. He punishes the kids. He loves them so much punishes them, he sticks them in his basket, and he whisks them away to hell, which is one of the things that Krampus was supposed to do. In the early 20th century, there are some fabulous postcards of the Krampus with his long tongue sticking out, making eyes at housewives, and housewives making eyes back at the Krampus. And he was kind of a lot of that repressed sexual energy that had been tamped down on in the 19th century. They found a way to express it for a while within the Krampus. Krampus, though, the Catholic Church didn't like Krampus. The Nazis, who hate everything, and we hate them entirely, they didn't like the Krampus. So the Krampus was sort of pushed aside for a while in various parts of Europe where he had been very, very popular. The last 20 years, though, it's seen a really beautiful Krampus revival. I write a lot about the Krampus in the book. I write even more about the Krampus in the Horn God book. My editor said, Jason, the Krampus section is too long. And I said, no, the Krampus section can never be too long. That's the Krampus. He is the thing. Um, at the end, I'll take, a pic- I'll take some pictures. Um, I'll take some questions, not some pictures. So um, if you have questions and I see them in the chat, I will get to them in a in a bit. Um, there's other really fascinating Yuletide figures like the Bell Snickle. There was a period of time where Saint Nicholas was really downplayed. 
because people had converted to Protestant religion, and they did not want St. Nicholas being the gift giver. So a lot of people took the Santa, the St. Nicholas figure and put him in the woods and made him sort of like a terrifying wild man of the woods who, for whatever reason, gave children presents. These, these were figures like the Bell Snickle, Nicholas in Furs. If you've ever watched The Office, uh, Dwight shows up once at the office as the Bell Snickle because the Amish still have the Bell Snickle as part of their traditions. Most of us say when we see the Yule Goat, we think of like a goat. But in some places, the Yule Goat was someone who bought presents who wore a goat mask and went and visited children. Usually the children do not look very, very happy to see the the Yule Goat because he looks kind of scary. Uh, one of my favorite holiday figures is the Christ Kindle or the Christ Kind. This is a Martin Luther invention. So Luther didn't like St. Nicholas, wanted another gift giver. The Magi apparently were too obvious for him, so he decided that the baby Jesus needed to be the one to give gifts to other people, which I guess kind of makes sense, but if you think about babies, there's a logistical problem here. They can't carry anything. So one of the one of the reasons that there are figures like the Krampus and others, some scholars think it's because they need someone to carry the presents for the baby Jesus because he was incapable of doing it himself. Another thing that sucks about, yeah, we don't like to talk about Black Pete. Uh, he's in the book, but ugh. And one of the things about the baby Jesus that is also something you can't do is you can't have the baby Jesus like talk to kids and say, what do you want for Christmas? You can't have like a baby Jesus wandering around the holiday party. So eventually they decided to have young women, girls 12 to 14, play the baby Jesus, like kind of a teenage Jesus. And eventually this figure took on sort of an angelic hue. And it began to look like an angel instead of the baby Jesus. There is the Christ Kindle market in Chicago, and they have a Christ Kindle there. Today, it's played by an adult woman, and she sort of looks like a Christmas angel. Uh, it's it's really beautiful tradition. It's a way to kind of get away from the male-dominated holiday figures. There's also Buffon, the Italian Christmas witch. And there are a few other Christmas witches throughout Europe. There's one in Russia, too. Uh, they usually lamented not being there for Jesus's birthday or birth, or perhaps they lied to one of the Magi about which way to go, and they're paying penance, and their penance is they have to give things to children. And Bafana is another one of those figures who's, again, having a renaissance like a lot of these other figures. So one of the things that I love about the holiday season is it's just not one day, it's many days. And one of the days that we still celebrate in the United States, though not as much as we should, of course, is New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve goes back to the January calendar. People have been celebrating New Year's Eve for 2,000 years on January, on December 31st, January 1st. Almost all of the things that we do today during the Yuletide season were often also done on New Year's Day. Queen Victoria used to give out 
New Year's cards instead of Christmas cards, because at the time, that's the card you gave out was one for New Year's. And they look a lot like Christmas cards. Sometimes they have elves on them and other things. Also, in a lot of places, it was a day to get presents, to give presents. So everything that people do on Christmas, they also do on New Year's. Different cultures would usually choose one or the other. One of the things that's confusing about it is even if you got a present on New Year's Day, you probably still call it a Christmas present because Christmas wasn't a day. Again, it was a season. Clement Clark's more Clement Clark Moore's poem at the end in some places was changed and happy new year to all and to all a good night because places were doing presents on that particular night and day and that's when they had Santa come and visit them. One of the things about New Year's in the United States though, it was not a holiday that they could sanitize like they sanitized Christmas. So I would argue that most of our crazy, more misruly type celebrations now really kind of take place on New Year's Eve. And it's the big sort of crazy drinking this holiday is more for adults than for kids sort of thing. And so we still have that. Twelfth night, as I said at the very beginning, an hour ago, was at one time the crown jewel in the holiday season. That's when almost everything took place. Anything you could do on Christmas, you could do on Twelfth Night. And one of the reasons Twelfth Night was such a big deal was because Twelfth Night was the end of the season. After this, you had to go back to work. It was all done with. The Christmas season was done. Yule was done. There was a time, you know, where you had to get back to the drudgery of everyday life. So if you're going to go out, go out in a big way. And that's what people did on Twelfth Night. Couldn't quite go out in a big way on January 6th because that was a much more religious day because it was Epiphany and was on the church calendar. But Twelfth Night was a time to do whatever you wanted to do. Twelfth Night is one of those holidays that I desperately want to bring back because I think that we need sort of a, a crazy drinking holiday in the United States where people can be responsible and still let off some steam in some parts of the world, Epiphany is still a very big holiday, and people get gifts there. A lot In a lot of Latin American countries, that's still very much the case, because the Magi are the ones that visit kids, so they show up the night of January 5th. You know, like when I was a kid, I used to leave cookies for Santa and carrots for the reindeer. Sometimes they leave hay for the camels that apparently fly across oceans and do miraculous things. In Spain, Epiphany is still a very, very big deal, especially in Catholic areas. In the United States, for whatever reason, we decided we were going to close down the holiday season at the latest January 1st. Sometimes it feels like as early as December 28th. Europe is much better about these celebrations than we are in the United States. They have kept them. There are still places that celebrate Twelfth Night and Epiphany and Christmas and do the whole big thing. But in the U.S., Christmas ate everything. And it's a detriment that the Yuletide season isn't as long, as glorious as it should be. And yes, I realize any holiday can be a crazy drinking holiday. 
But, you know, I like to try to justify it. It just makes me feel better about myself. So thank you for being here. I'm going to hang out for a while. I'm going to, if you've got questions, I will love to answer your questions. I think there, I know that there are some, there are a lot of European gift givers and figures that are part of winter solstice traditions. Like I, I think someone mentioned Tomty, and that figure has come back in a, a very, very big way the last 20 years. And even in the States now, you can find some of those, even in places like Target. You know, those are truly a relic of pagandom. Those were spirits of land, spirits of place. In a lot of places where they are still honored, they're treated in exactly that way. Similar to that are the Yulads of Iceland, which are a series of kind of elven figures whose mother appears in Norse mythology. So there are some very real links to paganism among some of these other Christmas figures like uh, the Tommy and like the Yule Lad. And, you know, I think their connection to Christmas is they were a part of what people noticed around Yule and the winter holidays that they were celebrating before Christianity. So they kind of got swept up and incorporated that Christmas and Yule, like everything in its wake, like it just picked up. If you had a tradition and you were a pagan, you probably still got to do it. Might have changed its name, might have been kind of, you know, reinterpreted in a way. But they, you know, most of it really got to stay. And that's why there are so many different Christmas traditions and Christmas givers and stuff because Christianity was in a place back then when it could more easily easily absorb those elements. I desperately want to get back to New Orleans as soon as this is over. That's our big thing is I miss New Orleans. So, um, you know, again, thank you so much for coming and listening to me prattle on about Yule for an hour. This really is my favorite time of year. My house looks like Christmas threw up on it every time. It's going to be really different. Yeah, the, well, the 12 nights of Christmas, really, you know, you've got the 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th. Those, those are the 12. And so really it was that period from Christmas through Epiphany, which is why 12th night is called 12th night. And all of those were kind of like Christmas. As I said, if you got a if you got a Christmas present on Twelfth Night, you didn't call it a Twelfth Night present. You called it a Christmas present. If you got a present on New Year's Day, it was a Christmas present. And to a lot of people, all of that period of time was a time to celebrate and to do holiday stuff. And yeah, so that's the twelve days of Christmas. I remember when I was a kid, I used to think of the twelve days of Christmas, and I'd be like. Christmas Eve, Christmas, St. Nicholas Day, you know, Hanukkah, is that a 12 day of Christmas? You know, because no one really ever explained it. Um, so for those of you asking about the Horn God book, it is supposed to be out, I think, June 3rd, the official release date. Usually with Llewellyn, things are out like a week before that or so. Hard to say. 
Um, I'm not brilliant, but I love the compliments. Now I'm blushing. Thank you. Um, yeah, so it'll be out in the spring. You know, I'm sure I'll be telling everybody about it on Facebook when it comes out because, you know, I'll be happy to sell it. And hopefully with vaccines on the way and stuff, I will be able to see some of you and maybe hand you that Horn God book or whatever it is. Um, so I wanted to give away two copies of the little Yule book. So if you send me a PM, like right now, if you're one of the first two to send me one, I will send you a copy of Llewellyn's little book Yule. Make sure to include your address. Make sure to include that you want it signed if you do and who, who you want it signed to. So whoever has like the least lag and is the fastest typist, the two of you can win a copy of the book. Yeah. I started decorating like the week after Halloween. I put up all of the holiday lights because I'm taking down the Halloween lights. I might as well put the other ones up. So it makes sense to me. It's usually when I do. I love the L. Frank, uh, the Frank, uh, yeah, Frank Baum, Wizard of Oz writer's story of Santa Claus. It is like super, super pagany. And they actually made one of those stop motion animation versions of it once. And they, I think, only showed it on TV one time because it was way too pagan. Like the person that was in charge of the Council of Elders looked like giant horn god Kronos. It's really, really great stuff. You could probably stream it somewhere. Yeah. But there's some really great Santa mythology. There's some also like some really terrible Santa mythology. I despise the Tim Allen Santa Claus movies. It's not how Santa Claus works, in my opinion. So I hate those movies very much. Yeah. The book also talks about you know, I tried to pack as much Yuletide craziness as I could. It has the most played song of the holiday season in the Billboard era. Talks a little bit about every holiday special that you've probably watched. My favorite is still Rudolph. I have almost the entire thing memorized. I love Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I realize it's really a story about bullying, and the women are treated very poorly in, in that movie. You know, there's a part where they say it was best to get the women folk back to Christmas town. It's really terrible in a lot of ways, but it's also got the best songs and the voice of Rudolph just like makes me cry because it's so cute. I love it. Love. And the Rankin Bass shit was just so like crazy, right? I mean, what does a bumble have to do with Christmas? Did I get a five foot bumble to put in my yard this year? Yes, yes, I did. But the bumble, I mean, just made up out of nowhere. Uh, just crazy, crazy. And all of their Christmas specials are like that. The Heat Miser and Cold Miser, Mother Nature, you know, wow. I love that. I mean, there was some secret pagan on the writing staff of all of those Rankin Best holiday specials. I even loved Rudolph's shiny new year uh, which is also crazy and has ben franklin in it so again thank you very much for being here 
You all are great. I hope it was fun. Thank you for helping me kick my book launch off in style. If you haven't bought it, I hope you do. If you don't, I still love you. I just love you a little less, which I think is fair. Um, so unless there are any more questions, I'm probably going to go kiss my wife and eat some dinner and drink some more of this delicious cider out of this special cider mug. All are great. I love our community. I'm so thankful uh, for all of you. And I'm just glad that we're all getting through this and stay healthy, stay safe, and have a really great holiday. So thank you all so much. And I will see you online. If you're listening to this as a podcast, thank you so much for listening to the podcast version of this. I did this on Facebook, uh, so I was taking questions there. Uh, Really, thank you. I've been a little lax with the podcast. I promise I will get better. I hope that you have a great holiday season, and I will see you all soon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.